You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's return to God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, We're looking at this. This is a, a letter written by Paul to a church in Corinth, obviously, and uh, we're looking at this in the mornings. And in chapter 5, Paul has been speaking about how he's really struggled. He's been battered with many different things, a lot of criticism, um, illness, persecution, and so on. And he's talked about, not surprisingly, he's, he's been talking about death and how he wants to be away and be with the Lord, but uh, he uh, also knows that he has to stay and to help the Corinthians. And he's just spoken about how we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We then go on to read this, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We thank you for it as we hear it. Grant that we would be doers as well as hearers. Grant that we would understand and grant that we would respond. We pray, O Lord, for uh, Richard and for Hugh and for Sinclair as they are proclaiming your word uh, in different places uh, today as well. Lord, we thank you that we have people who go from this fellowship to preach elsewhere. But help us now that you would speak to us through your word. Take away our fears. Take away our doubts. Take away our unbelief. And take away our pride and enable us, O Lord, to see Jesus, for we ask it in your name. Amen. The phone rings and you pick it up and someone says, "Uh, Mr. Robertson, or whatever your name is, uh, this is not a sales call. You know straight away that that's exactly what it is. And so what you do is if you have a very young child, you say, hang on a minute, and you give the phone to your very young child. Uh, and let them talk for hours if they wish. Uh, but it's, we don't like it, do we? You don't like being disturbed. The door knocks, and you go and answer the door, you open it before thinking, and there are two young men dressed in black suits, one's with name Elder So-and-so, the other Elder So-and-so. And you think, oh no, what have I just done? It's the Mormons. And uh, you don't like being disturbed. Someone selling religion. Or it may be that uh, you're down in the center of the city and somebody comes up to you and starts telling you the wonders of Scotland being independent or the nightmare of Scotland being independent. And they're selling you basically politics. They're trying to persuade you. And we say we don't like persuaders. Yet, we live in a culture where there's persuasion all the time. What do you think advertising is except trying to convince you to buy something that you don't need? 
were dominated by advertising all over the place. Now, I think when many people hear the word evangelism, you put this in the same category. You say, no, I don't want anyone to preach at me. Well, I've got really bad news for you if you're here. That's what I do. Um, it's, what do you expect? You come to a church, uh, someone is going to preach at you. But not preach at you. What do we mean when we say, I don't want someone to preach at me, tell me what to do, tell me what to buy, and so on? Well, let me tell you what preaching and evangelism is before you completely say, I don't want to listen to any of this. Evangelism just means telling people the good news. And this is genuine good news. This is not someone phoning you up and trying to sell you something. They've got this special deal for you. This is news that is so good that if you grasp it, you won't believe it because it's too good to be true. We need to hear genuine good news. And all that preaching is, or it should be, is not preaching at you, telling you what to do. It's telling you what God says. It's taking this book, the Bible, and saying, this is God speaking to us right now. And that's important. Because when I say preaching is telling you what God says, I'm not saying that I'm God or I have a hotline to God any more than anyone else here does. What I'm saying is just simply this, that I'm called to teach and proclaim the Word of God, which is the living Word of God, and as you listen to it and as you hear it, it is incredibly good news. So, if if you're visiting here, you're not used to being here, you're not used to being in church, give it a go, stick with it. Uh, It won't be that long. It may be long compared to what you expect or anticipate, or it may be incredibly short compared to what you expect or anticipate. But that's what we're doing. Now, in, in this passage, Paul is responding to criticism of his style of ministry, and he's responding to a lot of things, and those of us who are Christians, some of us will recognize this. He's, he's, he's thinking, why not give up? Sometimes the criticism and the battle is constantly wearing. He's referred to this several times already. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He's just been considering the hope of being in heaven with Jesus. He's just been considering the resurrection life. And now he goes on to consider and think about motivations for wanting to tell people the good news. And I think a lot of us who are Christians are really cynical about telling people the good news. We believe But do we really believe that our neighbors, our friends, our family, our workmates will believe? We believe that there's lots of people becoming Christians in China, and there was lots of people who became Christians in the 17th century and in the 1st century. But here, today, Dundee, you're kidding. Look along your street. How many of your neighbors do you think believe or might want to believe? How do you even begin to communicate? And that's what Paul goes on to talk about. He says, we are trying, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men, and that includes uh, men and women, obviously. But how does that fit with what he's been saying before, his discussion about death? Well, there are many things that motivate us. We are often motivated by fear of death, but we are also motivated by what people think of us, our reputation. 
And Christianity changes that. I want to read you something I got from a man called uh, Lucian of Samosata, uh, AD 170. It's a long time ago. It's only just over a hundred years after Jesus. Uh, He was Greek, he was a pagan, and he wrote this about why Christianity was growing. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and their voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they were all brothers. From the moment they are converted, they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. And that's a fascinating statement. Because here's a pagan and he's saying, this is what distinguishes Christians. They're not afraid to die and they love one another. And he's, he's condemning this. He's saying this is dreadful. I think... If we had that witness in our culture, the culture would be turned upside down. Is that how people know us? Paul says, because we fear the Lord, we seek to persuade men and women. Now, that fear of God, by the way, it is a, um, what's the word? It's reverence for God. It's not a, a cowardly and craven fear. But we are aware that God has called us to share the good news. And we are more concerned about what God thinks than about what other people think. So let's think about this persuasion. And if I say I'm trying to persuade you, um, you're not a Christian, you might think, well, that's a, what are you trying to do? You think, is it thumbscrews, believe or else? Is it someone yelling? Is it someone arguing? I don't think it's that at all. But I want to say this. I can't understand Christians who engage in evangelism without passion or feeling. And let me put it this way. Supposing one of the children, the myriads of children who keep getting added to in this church, and we're having coffee at the end there, and one of the children walks out the door, and they're walking in the middle of the road, and there's a truck coming up the road about to knock them over. You want to persuade them, and you're really concerned for that child. You do not say, excuse me, I would like to point out to you that you are about to be hit by a large object which is going to kill you. Would you like to move, please? You yell at that child because you really care for the child. You know you've got to move it. That's one maybe extreme example. But there are many, many other examples. Sometimes you will plead with people. You will plead with them, please do not go there. Please do not do that because you see the harm that's going to happen. Bertrand Russell once said that of all the versions of Christianity he'd come across or religion, the one that made the most sense was biblical Christianity or evangelical Christianity, but he didn't believe it because he said he hadn't met anyone who did. Because he said, if I believed what they believe, he said, I would crawl on broken grass to tell people and to warn people. We try to persuade men and women of the truth of the gospel and of their urgent need to respond to it. Why do we do that? Why would, if you weren't a Christian, why would I want to persuade you? To become like us? No. Because I'm full of fear and doubt and I just want confirmation by you joining in our group, becoming part of our clan? No. I'll tell you why. 
It's because we have discovered a great treasure and we want to share it. It is because we fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. We revere and respect God. We know that He has given this great news. And because we cannot think of anything better for you than that you become a believer. You'll have noticed in the pastoral prayers, we're praying for people who are seriously ill with cancer. And we, we pray, we long for them to be healed. And this may sound somewhat strange to you, but let me tell you this. For me, it is more necessary and more important and more a reason for joy that someone becomes a believer than they are healed. Now, the two aren't set as opposites, but it's the most important and wonderful thing in the world. It is coming from death to life. Two passages I put up there that show how this happened in the New Testament. Acts 18, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Letter we're reading from. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Very interesting. Paul didn't stand outside the synagogue with a big banner saying, you're all going to hell. Paul didn't stand and shout and yell at people. He went into the synagogue. He read from the law. He knew the law. He spoke to the people. He sought to persuade. He sought to reason with them. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not just saying to you, believe it, believe it, believe it. We, we, are, we are seeking to persuade. We're seeking to give you reasons to believe. Acts 28, in Rome, verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. There's an urgency in what we are doing. Look at this in First, Second Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Roy Clements says this about this passage. I suspect that one of the complaints that Paul's rivals had about his evangelistic style was that it was too blunt and confrontational. That Paul, they were saying. He presses Christianity on people too obviously. There's no subtlety, no sophistication about his marketing techniques. He needs to go on a soft-sell training course. As it is, he puts off more people than he attracts. He has no discretion, no finesse. To use the word which I suspect they used and which Paul uses here in verse 11, he persuades people, they said. The Greek word sometimes has a pejorative tone. It can mean cajoling, bullying, or browbeating. And Paul in these verses says, maybe it's true. Maybe I do persuade people, as you put it. But there is a reason for my uncompromising forthrightness. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. That's what we are called to do. But that persuasion is not to be dishonest or without integrity, and that's why we get the next bit. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, 
but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, this at first seems to be very defensive from Paul, but it's the opposite. His ego is not at stake. Christ was compelling him, not the desire for popularity or fame. It's a very dreadful and dangerous thing, by the way, for um, any preacher of God's Word to be incredibly popular. Um, it, it, it really can go to your head. Paul says, no. He says, I don't, that's not what I'm thinking about. He says, you know about us. You know how we preach the gospel with you. He says, I don't, I don't want, this is not about commending us. But he says, if you attack me, you're attacking the gospel I preach, and that's undermining the gospel. Because what, what happened was there were some people who were saying, who's this Paul? He's not particularly wealthy. He's not particularly strong. He's not a great speaker. He doesn't have a big congregation. In fact, he doesn't even have a congregation at all. Who does he think he is? Paul says, no, no, listen. You take pride in what is not seen. The Christian church has been ripped apart by people who use outward things to, to, to elevate their own glory, whether in Catholic or in Protestant or in Orthodox churches. Calvin says, to glory in appearance, not in heart, is to disguise oneself by outward show and to regard sincerity of heart as of no value. For those that will be truly wise will never glory but in God. But wherever there is empty show, there is no sincerity and no integrity of heart. God forbid that ever in this church you would get empty show. God forbid it. I've been in so many churches, evangelical churches as well. I, I myself have been guilty of this also, where it's a show. It's an entertainment. It's, in, in whatever way we're, we're doing it, it's, it seems to be pointing about ourselves. Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't want you to commend us. We don't want to commend ourselves. We want you to take pride in us. Why? Because we communicate the riches of Jesus Christ. We all like to be popular. I like to be popular. I want you to love everything that I say and do and say how brilliant and wonderful I am. And you'll come up and tell me, oh, how brilliant and wonderful you are. And I'll go, no, 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 not really. And I'll be going, yes, another one. Uh, great. Um, that's, that's what happens. You want to be, no one wants to be told you're rubbish. You don't, nobody, nobody wants that. We all like to be popular. But I have to say this, and I really mean this. At the end of the day, I don't really care what you think of what I say or who I am. It's what you think of what God's word is that really, really matters. It's God's opinion that counts. That's why sometimes you can go into a place and you can say things and everyone go, oh, that's funny and that was wonderful and that was great. And you go home and you get on your knees and the Lord tells you, why did you say that? Why did you do that? That wasn't my word. You were just showing off. Sometimes, when you hear God's word, you're going to say, I don't like that. Well, what do you expect to happen? You want the word of God to be changed so that you will like it? Then it stops being the word of God. It just becomes your word, what you want. Paul says, no, no. We preach the riches of Christ. We communicate the riches of Christ. And we hope, and God willing, I hope that we will always do that. Then verse 13, he says there's method in our madness. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
Some thought Paul was really intelligent and sharp, but others, like the governor Festus, thought that his great learning had driven him mad. Why? What was he doing? He was an intelligent man who believed in the resurrection. He was an intelligent man who believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was an intelligent man who believed that everyone, rich and poor, would one day stand before God and give account for what they had done. King Agrippa said to him, Paul, do you really think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be as you are, a Christian? And Paul said, well, I, I, I wish that everyone here was as I am except without change, the change that I've got on. But I wish that you all believed. He's arguing we may appear to be mad, but there's method in it. He says, this is for the good of his hearers. In fact, he, he kind of does a win-win thing here. Because he says, basically, if you think I'm really intelligent, that's great. That adorns the gospel. If you accuse me of being a fanatic, that's great too. Because that also points to the gospel. And he's happy to bear that cross for Jesus. But you know, there's another way to understand this verse. And I really quite like this. Um, and I hadn't thought about it at all until studying it this week. If you were to go back to 1 Corinthians, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you'll note that the Corinthians were really into speaking in tongues, which was kind of an ecstatic speech. The word for madness that Paul uses here is the word ecstasy. The same idea for the ecstatic speech in the tongues. And you know, it's possible that this is what was happening. That some in Corinth were going, you see that Paul? He's too rational. He's too coherent. Paul says, listen, I have moments of spiritual ecstasy too. But that's between me and God. See, that's what he's saying. It's the sake of God if we're in our right mind. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. He says, that happens to me too. But when I'm publicly preaching, I don't want to draw attention to myself, but to God. You ever seen that? You go YouTube it, you'll get, um, you know, just there's loads of these. Or some preacher who starts dancing in the pulpit and jumping up and down and pogoing and, and shouting, Jesus, 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 and headbanging off the wall and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'd do all that and you'd be utterly fascinated. I'd also be fired, but... Um, you, you know, I'm sure it would attract a crowd. There'd be people, wow, look how spiritual he is. Look how emotional he is. Look how he's getting all caught up. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No. I want people to fall in love with Christ, not with my style or me. Paul's basically saying, whatever understanding you take of this, he's saying, look at Jesus, not at me. The world does not take seriously God's holiness and God's righteousness, and so the message of God's judgment appears mad. The message of God's love doesn't make sense. If it's not understood, the cross and salvation is not understood either. Richard Dawkins calls the cross barking mad. People who are enthusiastic for the gospel are thought mad by the world, and indeed often thought mad by many within the church. But the bottom line surely is this that to reverence God, to stand in awe of God, and to worship God, to seek to please Him, is to be committed to the spread of the good news. I suspect that the reason we are so ineffective in evangelism is not because of the people we talk to. It's because we are far too concerned about what people will think of us. What will she think of me? We're really concerned about our self-esteem and of what others think. I'll give you an example. Most weddings I do which involve Christians, uh, 
The bride and the groom will usually say, please teach the gospel. Lots of our family are not believers and we, we want you to teach the gospel. In fact, I remember one couple saying, that's why we've asked you to marry us, because we know that you will. Well, I remember one particular incident where um, a couple of professing Christians came and they asked me to marry them and then they said, now, when it comes to a wedding, the wedding's completely theirs. How the service, whatever's going on, the legalities have to be done, but other than that, it's up to them, except one thing, and if you were ever to ask me to marry, you'd never, ever do this. Never try and tell me what to preach. Because they, they said to me, please, um, don't be too strong on the Bible because it will embarrass some of our friends who are not Christians. And I just looked and said, listen, I'm really, really sorry. I'm going to teach what the Bible says. I'm not going to try and embarrass. But if believing in God and Jesus and saying this is what Jesus says is embarrassing, then so be it. You have to be prepared to face that. A lot of us, we don't want to be considered nutcases. We don't want the, you know, you do see Christians who behave really weirdly in seeking to communicate the gospel. Um, uh, I've experienced much of that myself. And it isn't cringeworthy, embarrassing. But don't ever be embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul, this intelligent, very intelligent, sophisticated Jewish teacher believed that Jesus Christ had died in his place and now he says, I want to live for him. It's an absolute fundamental of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners. And it's one of the hardest things for people to get hold of. When uh, I mentioned last week that some of us had been to hear Matt Chandler uh, in Edinburgh, and it was a very interesting opening sermon that he gave on evangelism when he said this, did Jesus die for those who might believe or for those who would believe? I think it is the latter. There is something that is wonderful about coming to believe in Jesus and to know that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And when you know that, and I think what Paul is referring to here are believers who know that Christ died for them, therefore they are dead. Their reputation is dead. It doesn't matter. Therefore they can be like Lucian of Samosta said, that they, can, they don't care if they die. Because Jesus has died for them. And they are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Now, the cross to the non-Christian appears completely barbaric, utterly stupid, and they don't get the point of it. It is foolishness. It's wrong. But once you get the cross, once you understand the cross, once you know that you are forgiven for your sin because of what Jesus has done, you know the love of Christ, then you want to communicate that. That's why, by the way, evangelism is not yelling at people in an angry mood. It's not trying to convince people to become like us. It's because we know the love of Jesus that we ourselves can love people. It's a very dangerous prayer, isn't it? To pray, Lord, give me the burden that you have for people. 
Because Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he saw that it was going to be destroyed and he cried his eyes out. And he was the Son of God. And I think if you pray, Lord, give me the burden that when you see your neighbors and when you get on the bus and when you're with your workmates, it will become a burden so heavy that you'll have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, take it back. I can't cope with it. This is your burden. It's because of the love of Christ that we know evangelism is not a hobby. It's not something that you just do on a Tuesday night at Christianity Explored. It's a rescue operation. It's the difference between going for a leisurely sail on the Tay from the ferry or being called out as part of the lifeboat crew. It's not about showing to people how nice we are or how wonderful we are or how clever we are in winning arguments. It's about persuading people to follow Jesus Christ. And in this I am like Paul. When Agrippa said to him, do you think that you can persuade me? He said, I I want you to be like I am, yes, except for this change. In other words, I want you to follow Jesus Christ. I cannot wish anything better for every person here that you know and you follow Jesus Christ. Let me say this to the believers. I want you to imagine something. What if you knew that next week was the end? The end of your life, the end of the world. I once heard a minister say, and I a reform minister, and I was just utterly astounded at this, that if he knew that the world was going to end in a week, he would go out and get drunk because he'd never been drunk. That he would max out on all his credit cards and so on. Now, he was saying this, trying to magnify God's grace, saying, wouldn't it wonderful, Jesus would forgive me if I did that. I went, oh, how, how can you even claim to be a Christian? I mean, I'm sure he was a Christian, but just at that point, I thought he was crazy. Because if I knew that, There would be some phone calls and some visits and some letters I would write that I would just absolutely have to do. And why? Because of the love of Christ. Last week, I kind of said something and it was sort of ran out of time, otherwise I probably would have gone into this. I talked about standing on the day of judgment all alone. And someone said to me afterwards, that actually makes me very afraid. And they were right, right to be afraid. But let me tell you this, as a Christian, you won't be standing alone. I think I got that wrong. You will be standing with your intercessor, Jesus Christ, who is right now praying for you as he prayed for Peter. And do you know what Jesus says? Father, they are mine. I died for them. I paid the price of all their sins and failings. They are mine. And because they are mine, they are yours. They are clothed not in their own filthy rags, but in my righteousness. The books that you opened, they say they are guiltless and free. The theological terms say they're justified and sanctified. Because you know that, because you know that you are forgiven, that's what motivates you. Because you've been loved by Christ, because of the love of Christ, you are compelled to go out and tell the greatness of the Lord and the wonderful, rich, deep, extraordinary, life-giving, saving, forgiving love of Christ. And if someone looks at you and goes, you idiot, you don't get all embarrassed and coy. You say, okay, maybe I appear like an idiot, maybe I've said that wrong, I'm sorry if I've offended you, but you have no idea how my heart burns with love for Jesus and love for you And I want you to know him.
I think we won't need training in evangelism and we won't need any motivation if we grasp the love of Christ and the lostness of humanity. Or let me put it this way, the love of Christ for the lost humanity. As I walked up to the church this morning, a lady came up to me and she said, can you give me a couple of pounds to get to Whitfield? She said, I've just been mugged and she was battered. I actually didn't have a couple of pounds, so I actually genuinely said, I, I couldn't, I'm sorry, I can't, but let's go to the police or something. And she kind of wandered off. And I just thought, oh my goodness, how lost, how lost. And then I'm walking up the road thinking, you're going to be talking about telling people about Jesus. Could you have told her? I doubt it. But you have to find some way. You need to communicate who Jesus is. And so I encourage you as believers just to pray and ask God to help you in that. And above all, I suspect, you need to pray that God would make you aware of the love of Christ because it's the love of Christ that compels us. Not fear, not nagging, not, not um, a church saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do so much of this. But just the love of Christ compels us. And if you're not yet a believer, let me just say this. Seek and you will find. The love of Christ is the greatest treasure in the world. And it's there for you. It's offered for you. And I would plead with you to seek it and to take it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.